Yes, yeah, so the first reading is on page 676 in your Pew Bibles, and it's Malachi 2, 1 to 9. And now this admonition is for you. O priests, if you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instructions, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So for the New Testament reading tonight, we're looking at Romans chapter 12, uh, which is actually on page 803. And we're reading verses 1 to 21, 803. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Emma. Let me add my welcome. My name is Paul. I'm the pastor here. It's uh, good to be back in Romans. Uh, let me confess, it's one of those uh, passages where I wish somebody else could preach it because uh, it's really hard to put into practice. And as a preacher, you want to uh, practice what you preach. Um, but it's an amazing passage tonight as we reflect on how our love for God should actually transform the way that we relate to each other as church. So I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we grapple with these scriptures. Father, we thank you for this church family. We thank you for each uh, person sitting in this place tonight. We thank you that you know them, you love them. Uh, Lord, we do want to become more and more like our Lord Jesus, to think like him, to act like him, to relate to others like he did. And so please speak to us powerfully through your precious word tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a quote I read this week which made me go, ouch. It's from Charles Swindle. He said, when people discover that a church promotes authenticity, and when its leaders model authentic relationships on a consistent basis, then people just cannot stay away from that church. It's like an invisible magnet that just draws people in. But again, when people discover a church promotes authenticity, that means real relationships, real people sharing their real lives with each other. And when its leaders model authentic relationships on a consistent basis, then people just cannot stay away from that church. Isn't that true? I know that's true of the churches that I've been involved in. The churches I've been part of, I love the teaching, and I love the singing, and I love the praying, and I love the outreach. But church is about people. And so when I think of church, I, I want real people who know each other, and real people who care about each other, and real people who love each other. We don't want fake relationships, and we don't want superficial relationships. We want real relationships. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're part of a family together, this should be a place where you can share your joys with each other. And this should be a place where you can share your sorrows with each other. This should be a place where you walk into this church building and you gather with your family and you can be real with each other. Isn't that the kind of church that you want to be part of? Church shouldn't be full of people who are self-promoting 
bragging, superficial and fake. Church, church shouldn't be full just of beautiful people. Church is a place of broken people. Broken people who are loved by God and who love God in return. And broken people who love each other. Isn't that what you want church to be like? You could be at home tonight and you could be podcasting a sermon from any of the best preachers around the world. You could be at home tonight with your favorite worship CD on, singing the songs that you want to sing rather than the songs that you're forced to sing. You could be at home tonight praying by yourself, but you're not doing church because church is about people and church is called a family. With all its complexities and all its oddities, different people, different ages, different stages, different personalities, but we are church. People who know and love Jesus, who have been transformed by the mercy of God, gathering together to share our lives with each other and to do life together. And so when you find a church like that, full of authentic people, no pretense, no prima donnas, no factions, no fighting. Real people who really love Jesus and love each other. That's a church worth joining, isn't it? And what's authentic church? I've said authentic church is, is real people who really love Jesus. Saying real things about real issues with real feelings. Sharing their real self with each other. And that's what we're looking at tonight in Romans chapter 12. We're in the, uh, the so what section. So we spent weeks looking at Romans 1 to 11. We, we, we grapple with the, the doctrine of election, God choosing people, the, the doctrine of assurance that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The doctrine of justification, uh, that you don't deserve to be saved. You're a wretched sinner that God has reached out and showed his, his love and his kindness and his grace and his mercy to but how does that change the way that you live? And we saw at the beginning of Romans 12 that uh, the true worship is a total surrender to God. Remember that? Here I am, Lord, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. But if you are truly worshipping God, that is going to change the way that you see yourself and it's going to change the way you see other people. So how should we see ourselves? Here's my first point. We're supposed to have a sober view of yourself. Look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, for, the, for by the grace given me, so God was incredibly gracious to the Apostle Paul. He saved a murderer and a blasphemer and he transformed his life and he gave him authority. For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, it's kind of reminiscent of Jesus, truly I say to you, now, what's Paul's words to us? What's God's word for us? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. That word think comes three times in the original. Think, think, think. Think about how you think about yourself. In light of the gospel, when you've seen that whilst you were a sinner, Christ died for you, when you see that you're alive in Christ, that changes the way that you see yourself. How do you see yourself? Verse 3, with sober judgment. Uh, literally with an accurate, balanced, right 
self-estimate. It's, it's all well and good you and I singing, you know, here I am, all of me. But who is the you that you're singing about? Who are you? And according to the scriptures, you are created in the image of God. You're human in the image of God. You're loved by God. You're forgiven in God because of his son Jesus. You're precious to God. Christ is everything to you. Your, your identity, your worth, your value is all about Jesus. And if you get that right, then verse 3 makes total sense. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't have too high a view of yourself. Don't puff yourself up. Don't think that you are better than other people. Don't think that you are somebody. And lots of people here need to hear that. Because for some of us, we've spent our whole lives being told how wonderful we are. You've achieved so much. You're so successful. You're so beautiful. You're somebody. You're important. But when it comes to your relationship with God, we're all equal. I've been doing a lot of thinking about pride recently. Pride is a really ugly thing when you are so preoccupied with yourself and with self-promotion. And the Apostle Paul says, don't have too high a view of yourself. Of course, some of us here need to hear the exact opposite of that. Some of us here have, have been told all of our lives that we are nobodies and that we are useless and we're a failure and we're unloved. And you need to hear that you are deeply loved by God and you're precious in his sight. But that's what the gospel does, my friends. It changes the way that you see yourself. Remember the story of the, the Duke of Wellington? back in the 1700s at that little village church, walking up for communion. And in front of him is that farmer who is totally uneducated. And they kneel at the communion rail together. And the farmer says, oh, you should go first. You're more important. And the Duke says, no. In Christ, we're all equal. See, when you understood who you are in Jesus, that you are a sinner saved by grace, it changes the way you see yourself. And it changes the way that you see other people and see the gifts that God's given people. The picture here in verse 4 is of a body. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He says, look, church is a bit like your body. In your body, you've got fingers, you've got toes, you've got skin, you've got nails, you've got ears, you've got eyes, you've got a heart and a liver and a kidney and a gallbladder, you've got bones, you've got veins, you've got muscles. Your body is made of all these different parts. And each part of your body is important. And that's the same with the church. We are all different, but we belong to each other. Do you spot that down in verse 5? Each member belongs to all the others. He's saying, I need you and you need me because we belong to each other and we're a family and we've all got different gifts. And a sober view of yourself says that, that my gifts are not more important than your gifts and your gifts are not more important than my gifts. They're just different gifts. But we actually need each other to function as a body and as a family and as a church. So, verse uh, 6. We've got different gifts according to the grace that God has given us. They're all given by God. If your gift is prophesying, 
That is when you have a, a, a gift of speaking a direct word into a particular situation, always weighed against Scripture. Is that, if that's your gift, then use that gift. If your gift is serving, which might not be a very desired gift, but it's that gift of just waiting on other people and serving other people. What a beautiful gift that is. If that is your gift, then use it. If your gift is teaching, then cultivate that gift. If your gift is, look at the next one, encouraging, verse 8. If you've got the gift of getting alongside someone and counseling them and comforting them and exhorting them and consoling them, if that's your gift, then use it. If your gift is contributing, use that. If it's leading, use that. If it's showing mercy, verse 8. Caring for those in distress. Don't do that reluctantly. Do it cheerfully. And what he's saying is that if you've got a sober view of yourself, if you look around the church and you say, we're all equal here, I'm not more important than you, and I'm not less important than you, then you start to see your gifts as just given by God. I don't resent your gift. I'm not bitter I haven't got that gift. I'm just thankful for the gifts that I've got. An authentic church is people who are not arrogant, not proud, not puffed up, not competitive, we're just sinners saved by grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that's what the gospel does. It changes the way you see yourself. But you're not just an individual here. Church is a family. And if you've understood the mercy of God, it will change the way that you relate to each other. And so what does Paul say about the way we relate to each other? Here it is. Make sure that we as a church have a sincere love for each other. Verse 9 is like the headline if you want. Love must be sincere. That's a command. Love must be sincere. Or literally, love mustn't be hypocritical. That's what that word means. Not hypocritical love. Isn't that extraordinary? Of all the things the apostle could say about how to love each other. He could have said, love each other sacrificially, love each other selflessly, love each other deeply, love each other joyfully. He chooses to say, make sure that your love for each other is not hypocritical. And that word means it's not play acting. That's what a hypocrite does. He treats life like a, a performance. He's on the stage. See, hypocritical love in this church would look something like this. I walk into church at 6.45 or 6.50 and tonight I'm going to pray, I'm going to play happy Christian and I'm going to smile at everybody when actually in reality I'm hurting but I just need to pretend I'm happy tonight. And tonight I'm going to play needy Christian because I want people to, to love me and care for me and I want some attention tonight. I'm actually okay, but I'm going to pretend that I'm not. And tonight I'm going to play your best friend. Come on, tell me your problems. Tell me your problems so that I can feel important and I can gossip about you on Tuesday or, or Wednesday. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying, church is not a theater. This isn't a place where you put on a, a mask or a facade and you pretend to be somebody you're not. Church is a place where you can come and just be you with all your sorrows and all your pains and all your joys and all your happiness. There's nothing worse than fake church, is there? 
where people pretend to be somebody they're not. We're supposed to be real people who really love Jesus, sharing our real selves with each other. An insincere love where, you know, you, you flatter one another and you have this perfect exterior when inside you're hurting and you're breaking. That's just fake, isn't it? And if you've met Jesus, your love for each other must be sincere, genuine. It doesn't mean you always say nice things. In verse 9, you hate what is evil and you cling on to what is good. I mean, God defines what is evil. God defines what is good. And sometimes the way to love your brother or sister sincerely is to point out their wrong, point out their failings. That's a sincerely loving thing to do. So what's it going to be like for Church by the Bridge in 645 to show sincere love for each other? I want to urge you to read through verses 10 to 21. I'm going to try and summarize them in four different areas. If we're going to sincerely love each other, we must be devoted to each other. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The word for brotherly love is, is actually that tender, warm, affectionate love. It's not a cold love. It's not a mechanical love. Shock horror. This kind of brotherly love needs to involve your emotions. It's got to involve your feelings. You should actually care for each other. And the word for devotion there is like the picture of, you know, those loyal, faithful dogs that have been around for 13 years and they just walk alongside you and they stick with you and they're always there with you. That's the picture. If you're sincerely loving each other, you're there alongside each other 24-7. And I think he unpacks that in verse 15 when he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It involves that emotional commitment. If somebody here is grieving or is mourning, we should be alongside them. Not just sitting with them, but actually feeling their pain with them. If somebody is rejoicing and is happy and is celebrating, we don't resent their happiness. We rejoice with them. That is sincere love. Someone said, love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love means you identify with people. You sing with them and you suffer with them and you enter deeply into their experience, and you enter into their emotions. You laugh with them, and you cry with them. Don't you want to be part of that church? Uh, people at that church have done that with me. People at this church have done that with me. When Nathaniel was in intensive care this year, there were people at this church who sat with me, who cried with me, who prayed with me, who wept with me. Uh, the, t- the tough time five years ago, maybe we weren't, weren't around then, when I was going through a really dark time in life, people at this church, you know, they sent me notes, they prayed with me, they encouraged me, they just got alongside me. We just did life together. Rejoicing when you're rejoicing and mourning when you're mourning. How do you do that? How do you develop these kind of devoted relationships? Please don't 
be limited with your time. If you've got no time for people, you won't develop these kind of relationships. Please be prepared to be vulnerable with each other. Please actually be honest about how you're going. And please don't be so wrapped up in yourself that you've got no room for other people in your life. A sincere love means that we will be devoted to each other. A sincere love means that we'll live in harmony with each other. In verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Don't be puffed up. Don't be arrogant. But be willing to associate with people of low position. There's no snobbery in a church family. Our, our world is obsessed with class and status and which school did you go to and where did you live and where do you work and what car do you drive. But the church should be a place where we don't judge people on what they wear or what they do. We live in harmony. If, if you're musical, you understand the word harmony. Harmony is when you've got two people and they're singing slightly different tunes, but they just sound so beautiful together. It just sounds better when there's two of them singing in harmony than when they're both singing the same tune. And he says, church is a place where, you know, we're not clones of each other. We're not all identical. We might be singing slightly different tunes, but we just complement each other. We just work well together. How do you do that? Flick back to verse 10. We're not just devoted to one another. We actually, we honor one another. We respect each other. We honor people with our words. We honor people with our actions. We honor people in a way that we talk about each other and where we talk to each other. We build each other up. We thank people. We encourage them. We don't disrespect them. We honor them. We respect them. And, and that's linked with our humility, isn't it? Those last two words, honor one another above yourself. So you prefer other people to get the honor. You rejoice when other people are praised. You don't resent that. The church is actually supposed to be kind of like a choir. See, if you're part of a choir, you don't long to be the soloist. You're very content just to be part of the big gathering, singing your part, listening to each other, each other and making a beautiful noise together. If you, if you want to be a soloist, you don't belong in a choir. If you want to be a soloist at church, you don't belong here. You're part of this family, part of a body. We need each other to work together in harmony. What was my third point? Sincere love <coughs> shows generosity. If we're loving each other sincerely, it's not just that we are there for each other. We're actually meeting each other's needs, material needs, physical needs. Look at verse 13. He says, share with God's people those who are in need and practice hospitality. This is where you can learn from the early church. They shared their resources. If there's somebody here who is in need, it might be emotional need, but well, you share your time with them. It might be actually a practical need. Someone needs a car to use. You've got a car sitting in your, in your car space or garage. Well, give it to them for a week. Uh, you, someone's desperately in need of a holiday. Well, you might have some money to pay for a holiday, or you might have a holiday home to share with them. 
as somebody is in desperate need of meals, where you cook the meals without being rostered on. You just share with people who are in need. I, I, I've got a friend who, or a couple friend, who moved to the States about four years ago. They visited a church on Sunday, and within a week, that church has lent them a car to use until they found a car to buy, had shown them how the banking system worked, had provided some baby clothes, and provided meals for them. They were new to the church. And it was just a model of how that church really functioned on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. They knew each other. They loved each other. They shared their lives with each other. Uh, But generosity isn't just giving things away. Uh, Generosity involves drawing people into your life. That's why he says at the end of verse 13, uh, practice hospitality or pursue hospitality. Hospitality isn't just inviting friends around for a meal. Hospitality is, is loving the stranger. So in the early church, there, there were very few hotels and they were dangerous places and expensive places. And so if Christians were coming to the town, the church, the Christians in that place would open up their homes. You need a, a, a bed for the night? Well, come and stay with me for the night. You need some food? Well, here's some food for you. Rachel and I have opened up our homes a number of times. Just having people we don't know into our home. Christians who are visiting Sydney. Why would they spend $200 a night for a hotel? We've got a spare room. And so they stay for one night or two nights or three nights. And let me tell you that we are more blessed by their presence than I think they are by our presence. Pursuing hospitality, not just inviting your friends around but sharing a life with people. That is sincere love for each other. And lastly, living at peace with each other. See, I'm quite aware here at Church by the Bridge, there'll be people in this building tonight who have wronged you, hurt you, upset you, offended you in some way. So how are you supposed to relate to them? And this is where it's really countercultural. We'll start with the negatives. End of verse 14. Do not curse them. Uh, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't seek revenge. Don't try and get your own back. Down to verse 19. Do not take revenge. Down to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. I mean, don't look for an opportunity to badmouth them or slander them or hurt them or to pay back or to, to get even with them. Don't you think it's sad when the church, God's family, is more like a schoolyard full of year nine schoolgirls who are bickering and holding grudges and doing the silent treatment and the superficial niceties and the the fake smiles, but the catty comments. It's not just about coexisting here, never talking, avoiding each other, pretending you're okay. What are you supposed to do with that person? Verse 14, the way to love them is to to bless those who have persecuted you. Or down to verse 17, you don't repay them with evil. Instead, you are careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, you don't stoop to their level. You're above criticism. 
And verse 18, you take the initiative. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you've sought to resolve it. You've sat, you've listened, you've apologized, you've tried to do good, and they're just not willing to be reconciled. What do you do then? Well, verse 19, don't take revenge. Don't seek payback. Leave room for God's wrath. That's his prerogative, not yours. It's mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. Retaliation and punishment and judgment and justice, they all belong to God. What are you going to do? Verse 20, you do good. If your enemy is hungry, well, give them a meal. If that person who has wronged you so badly is thirsty, you give them something to drink. You show an act of kindness. You cook a meal, you buy a gift, you pursue reconciliation. And in doing this, verse 20, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's not saying that you're doing this to harm them. You do it to bring healing. Not harm, but healing. Not embarrassing them, but your generosity, your goodness, your kindness might bring them to repentance. But you, verse 21, don't be overcome by evil. Don't be consumed by this wrong and this hatred and this bitterness, but, be, but overcome evil with your good works, with your good deeds, with your kind words. Now that's sincere love, isn't it? And I find this challenging. As a church, we're called to relate to one another with this unhypocritical, genuine, sincere love. We're devoted to each other. We live in harmony. We show generosity and we pursue peace with one another. Now if that was church, wouldn't you want to be part of it? If that was 6.45, wouldn't you be eager to get here every week and be early to share your life with each other? Real people who really love Jesus, sharing their real lives, saying real things about real issues with real feelings. And the only way to do that, my friends, the only way to develop this sober view of yourself and your sincere love for others is to fix your eyes on your Savior. To fix your eyes on Jesus again. Verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal. Be zealous for the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor. Your your spiritual temperature is good. And and you're serving Christ. You're not serving people, you're serving a Savior. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction when you're wronged. And make sure you're being faithful in prayer, on your knees, to your Lord, to your God. What does Charles Winner say again? When people discover a church promotes authenticity, when its leaders model authentic relationships on a consistent basis, people just cannot stay away from that church. And that's the church that we want 645 to be like. Real people who really love Jesus, sharing their real lives with each other. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this family that you've brought together, for our our diversity. Thank you, Father, for the gifts you've given us. Forgive me, Lord, for times when I have been insincere. Forgive us all for times we we have been hypocritical in our, our love for each other. 
Lord, please create in, in this family these authentic relationships. Rid us of pride, keep us humble, and help us to, to show genuine Christ-like love for each other. In his name we pray.